About six years ago, Pamela Valdez was faced with an important choice between a full scholarship for university in the U.S. or dropping out to get her business off the ground. As you may have guessed, the latter one. That was the birth of Beak, a startup created to be the top audio platform in Latin America. Originally from Mexico, Pamela was part of YC in 2017 and got investments from VC firms like Greylock and Excel. Outside of work, Pamela enjoys surfing and, of course, listening to audiobooks, over 50 a year. In this episode, Pamela shares how Beak pivoted and evolved along the journey, the importance of managing yourself as the company grows, her unique story of getting into YC, and some special book recommendations. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam! Running the leading startup community in Latin America costs money, but some people are taking notice, so I want to take a minute to thank our early supporters. At Viva Real, we were an early customer of Zendesk. Other companies like Nubank, Loft, RD Station, they all use Zendesk to keep their customers happy. Zendesk for Startups offers Zendesk software for customer service and sales for free for six months. To learn more, head to zendesk.com startups. Also, we're really happy to inform that Latitude Fellows now have access to a ton of extra exclusive benefits on top of the six months free, thanks to Zendesk's support of our community. Go to latitude.com to learn more about the Latitude Fellowship and apply. I learned the hard way that lo barato sale caro. If I had worked with Gunderson from the beginning, maybe our company wouldn't have had to pay $100 million in unnecessary taxes because of our corporate structure. We're lucky to have their support along with Kerry Olson and Bronstein Zilberberg in developing one of our first products, Latitude Go. We want the process of incorporating companies in Latin America to be 10 times cheaper and twice as fast. If you're starting a venture-backed company, you can check it out at go.latitude.com. I've been banking with Silicon Valley Bank for over a decade as one of their first customers in Latin America. They're committed to the region and have made great introductions over the years. We want to thank them for their support of Latitude. To learn more, visit svb.com. Now on to the episode. Pamela, great to have you on Latitude Podcast. Thank you, Brian. I'm really excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of you and everything that you're doing for the community in Latin America. So it means a lot to be well, here. The pleasure is all mine. And you know, I think that we kind of first met through audio, actually. I met you facilitated by audio, which was, was Clubhouse, right? We, we, we went through that big surge of Clubhouse and I had a chat with Freddie last night who also, like, I ended up spending a lot more time with Freddie and Christian from Platzi. And so I'm really thankful for that because I met some amazing people in that short amount of time. So I'm glad we can continue the conversation on audio. I know, it's crazy. Like, at the beginning of Clubhouse, I remember I was one of the first 100 users, literally in April 2020, on Clubhouse. And in the very early days, you could have conversations like this, you know, like meeting really amazing people. Now it's gotten like a little different, but at one point I was in a, the same room with Naval, Ilan Gill, Andrew Chen, and me. I was like, imposter syndrome 200%. Um, uh, but I'm also very thankful for all the opportunities Clubhouse brought in. That's awesome. Well, like I'm you. curious, we kick things off. Were you ever able to surf and listen to podcasts at the same time? That's a dying question I have here. Oh my God. No, I wish. Actually, that's something that 
I always think when I go surfing, I'm like, oh my God, there should be a way I could be listening to my audiobooks when I'm surfing. Uh, but no, unfortunately right now, like you can't even wear like rings or anything that can be like, that can fall off your body when you're surfing because just the ocean will just, you know, take everything away when the waves go. Totally, yeah. totally. Well, well, tell us how you became a founder and what Peter Thiel had to do with it. Of course. Um, it's actually funny this week because um, I'll, I'll tell you a little short story about this. So Big started first as a contest in my university. I used to go to college in first in Mexico, in Itam, uh, and then I went on exchange to UT Austin. And this started because in one of my business classes, one professor was like, the project is to bring... Uh, a business idea to come up with a business idea and make a plan. And I had this idea that why Spotify had done this like really big transformation in music and Netflix had done in movies, but no one had done it in books. And I've always been a book geek. So I was just like, that needs to happen so that people read more books like me. Um, and my professor thought it was a great idea. He pushed me to get into a contest. I got into this contest uh, I remember actually like some of the now important VCs in, in the region, in Latin America, were like judges of, of that contest. And I lost the contest and I was so pissed and so sad. I was just like, I can't believe they're not seeing it. Like, there's no way this is not going to be big. Why did I lose this contest? And that kind of like, um, like pushed me to actually start because I was just so pissed that I lost. But funnily enough, the person that won that contest um, is like a friend called Luis. He won the contest. The price of the contest was going to MIT for a summer. And now he literally joined yesterday as my head of engineering. So that's how small the, the community is in, in Latin America and how like, you know, building relationships is a long, a long term game. Um, but yeah, it's like really funny because this literally happened this week. This, that person that won the contest uh, that I lost and like literally every single person in my team quit. They were all like, this is over. We're not going to make it happen. I'm going to do finals or whatever. I'm not going to keep going. And I was just like, no, I need to make it happen. And then years later, this like literally my rival who won the contest is now uh, in my team. And we're like really excited to bring the NASDAQ belt together in five years, which is a plan. Um, so that's kind of how it started. I lost that contest. All of my friends quit. I was very sad. And I just kept going. I had the opportunity to go and exchange to UT Austin. And something that I generally do in my life, and this is an advice I give to, to entrepreneurs, is whatever you do, just be a top 1% performer. No matter what you do, if you're surfing, if you are um, talking to people, if you're selling, if you're in a class, try to be like top 1%. Because eventually the score takes care of itself. Like that adds up and you eventually get good things. So in my university in, in UT Austin, when I went on exchange, I started doing that, just like telling people about my project and what I wanted to do. And it was very early. And I ended up, you know, lucky. I got in a class with Bob, Met Bob Metcalf, who invented Ethernet. And... I was just hustling so much to show him that, you know, I'm driven and I can accomplish things so that he would help me, you know, 
get a co-founder, get funding, like be part of his class and accelerator. And then one day Peter Thiel called Bob and well, not Peter Thiel, but the Thiel Foundation. And basically this foundation, what they do is they fund 20 entrepreneurs per year who are under 23 years old to drop out of school. Basically, they give you $100,000 over two years so that you drop out of school and do your project. And the Teal Foundation called Bob and they are like, who is the top three people? Who are the top three people in your class that we should talk to and they should be dropping out and building companies? And since I had been doing so much effort to just deliver in whatever I was doing, Bob had me top of mind and he said, Pamela, right? So after six months of trying to get funding in Austin, I got a hundred notes from investors, literally like a hundred. And then in the same week, I got the Teal Fellowship in like a Tuesday. And then the Saturday or like the Friday, I got into YC. Uh, so yeah, that was kind of a crazy Yeah, it story. kind of rains it pours. You've got all these difficult challenges you're facing and then one thing happens and then it, there's a breakthrough moment, right? And, and things kind of pile up and uh, that's incredible. And I didn't know you were a, a Thiel Fellow. Like I remember learning about the program the first time and I thought kind of a brilliant idea. You take all these young people that are you know, ambitious and smart, you kind of you know, support them. So this evolved into Beak. Talk quickly about the mission behind Beak and what are you building to accomplish it? Of course. Uh, so yeah, like I said, it started more like a project in uh, in school and in college. And I got really pissed that I lost the contest. And that was initially what pushed me to start. But that doesn't take you very far because it was all ego, right? I was just so pissed that I lost. And that doesn't take you very far. You need to find a deeper mission. I, I like to say it's like a deep why. Like, why are you doing this? So eventually, what happened to me that was very uh, transformative I listened to, to the zero to one audiobook and that like changed my life. I was like, I need to go to Silicon Valley. This is what I want to do. I want to build like a zero to one uh, company and actually getting the deal fellowship and going into YC. So it was just very shocking to me that great content can change your life. And what happens if the best content is not available in the local language in Spanish, right? So like my dad, for example, like he knows how to speak English. He does business in the U.S. Um, but if it's not in Spanish, he's not going to listen to the audiobook. Like e even though he understands English, he's not going to listen to the audiobook if it's not in Spanish. So there's so much content that is available in other languages that if it's not available in Spanish, we're just not going to move forward as a region, right? Because stories move people. They are even more powerful than money. They are the most powerful thing ever. Like stories create horrible things like the Holocaust or great things like, you know, the feminist movement now. So I just thought, wow, if we don't have the best stories in our local language, we're just never going to move forward. And then, so I started thinking the opportunity was in books in Spanish and getting people together around books. Uh, but the reality is that people don't like to read. They don't like to read physical books. It's just, it's just so foreign at this point to like someone young to grab a physical book. And then that was actually, and not even young people, like my dad, he loves reading the newspaper, but he hates reading physical books. And 
when I showed him audiobooks, he was like, wow, I'm listening to an audiobook per week at the gym. So I was like, wow, if I got my dad to read with audiobooks, this is like the future. So it ended up changing to this mission of if you bring the best content to Spanish and to audio, people are actually going to consume it. And then we are going to stop being that third world region. Uh, we're actually going to be able to compete with the first world because the best stories are available also in our language and we can learn and we can move forward, right? So that's why your audiobook, Viva Emprendedores, it's like in Spanish now on Big, we're bringing a lot of startups, uh, zero to one from Peter Thiel, and in general, content that can help people achieve what they want and think beyond what they what is available in their language because we want to bring even more. So our mission now is to change people's lives through their headphones, one content at a time. And I feel very excited. I think we're doing it. I get a lot of love messages on Instagram from people saying that it actually happened to them. So yeah. yeah you're unlocking a now. whole new opportunity for people that information that wasn't available. And I mean, information, you know, it's generic to say, but it's power for people. And that's exciting to see. And uh, I, w I will say that having collaborated with your team, really impressed by the team and really uh, thrilled to be working with you on, on my book in Spanish. So just came out and uh, anyone listening that prefieres español, pues ahí está. So how did the product pivot and uh, evolve since the beginning? If you, if you could talk a bit more about that in the early days. Of course. So in the very beginning, when I lost the contest, I am not a developer. I don't know how to code. I know a little bit how to code now, but back then I, I didn't know anything. So I was faced, I, I faced the first challenge that every entrepreneur who is not non-technical faces, which is how do I build this? Like I have the idea, I can handle the business side, but how do I build this? And basically it was very hard for me to find someone who could help me, who wanted to be my co-founder, basically. So what I did was I started a Facebook page and I started posting content about books and getting people together around content in Spanish, like books. Back then it was like Harry Potter, uh, Divergent, Garcia Marquez, like different types of, of content that was available in Spanish. And I got my Facebook page to like 30,000 followers And I remember that's what really impressed Bob Metcalf back then in, in UT Austin because he was like, you don't even have a product and you have 30,000 people? Like, this is exactly what entrepreneurs should do, like break the chicken and egg problem, right? So I started growing the community and I think you need to show traction to find people to invest in you. And to invest in you is not only capital, it's also time, right? So if you want a technical co-founder or you want to, like a employee number one who will take equity instead of a salary because you don't have money in the early days, you need to show some sort of traction. And that's what helped me get the first people who started helping me build the first version of the platform. And initially I thought, because when I pitched in the contest, the idea was Netflix for books, basically. And I lost the contest because every judge said, Like, there's no way you're going to get the license uh, for the books to, to distribute them like a subscription, like Netflix. So I thought, okay, how do I turn this around? If I get a lot of people and you get the customers, then the publishers will give me the rights and the licenses because it's just easier if I already have their customers. 
So initially I thought we'll build a really huge community of book lovers and then we can sell them something. So it started as a social network for book lovers. Like the, the second step of that Facebook page was more like Goodreads, like what Goodreads is in, in the US. It was very similar to Goodreads in Spanish. Uh, that's what we got into YC with. That's what I got the Teal Fellowship uh, for. And we raised our seed round with that idea, like uh, Goodreads for, for Latin America, like the biggest book review site in Spanish. We actually grew it to be the biggest book review site in Spanish back then. We had like 30 times more Spanish book reviews than Amazon. We became great at SEO. So we were driving a lot of traffic for people searching book titles in, in Spanish. Uh, at one point we had like, at the peak, I think we had like 2 million uh, monthly visits. And when we were growing and we were having all those visits, I remember I went to Silicon Valley. I, I live in Mexico, but... I would always go like, at least once per quarter to Silicon Valley to get my Silicon Valley dose. Basically, um, I talked to all of my investors, and all of them said like, "It's going great. Let's keep growing. Let's launch movies. So now you can have like movie reviews instead of only book reviews." And just one of my investors said, "This is going nowhere if you don't make money. So stop growing and focus on making money. You need to turn this into a business." And this was like before we were, before when everything happened, uh, where companies started needing to have uh, a business model. And I was just so thankful for, for that insight because I really, when things are going well, you don't want to pivot because it seems like things are going well. And we made a hard pivot. It was like literally in a couple months, we like killed that other product, lost millions of visits and started this new audio product because we figured that we couldn't make money if we just had book reviews. There, there should be something bigger. And I remember this insight that I had when I listened to Zero to One and I could be listening to books while I was biking to class. I thought it was genius. So I said, you know, that's content that I would pay for if it was available in Spanish, not book reviews. I don't pay for book reviews, but I would pay for audio content in Spanish. So just like I predicted, we already had really big amount of traffic. So the publishers gave me the rights and the licenses to distribute the audiobooks because they needed uh, somewhere to sell them. And they, uh, there actually wasn't a relevant Spanish player in, in audiobooks. So I got the licenses, launched the new audio platform. We tried to keep both at the same time, but we quickly realized you need to focus on one thing. And actually the, the user persona was very different. Like the book lover who looks for book reviews is completely different to the person who wants to read, but doesn't read and doesn't have time, but they have their hands busy and their mind free for at least an hour a day. So we have to kill the other product focus. And we launched the audio platform in like starting 2019. And we've grown so much since then. Just in 2021, we've grown 5x. So yeah, it's been quite, quite a ride. And yeah, now actually we, we keep, I, I think like companies are pivoting all the time, right? Because the market is always evolving and you need to be adapting to your user. So we started as an audiobook platform, but now 65% of what people consume on our platform is our big originals, which is not an audiobook and it's not a podcast. It's this format that we created that is like short, the best ideas around this topic from this creator in like 
30 to 40 minutes. And that's what the majority of people uh, consume on our platform now. So in the end, it's cool because we're still solving that problem, right? Like changing people's lives through their, head, through their headphones. But you don't have to call it book review or audiobook. It's just like what users want and the way you get the job to be done uh, for the It's user. a really great story of adapting, seeing the needs of the customer investor that gave you the hard feedback. What was your initial reaction when they said, hey, because when everything's growing like crazy, maybe you didn't have a, you know, clarity on your revenue model. What was your initial reaction? Were you like, everyone else was telling you, like, it's great, let's keep growing. By the way, can you share who the investor was? Yes, it was Gustav Alstromer, who is a partner Amazing. at YC. So what was your initial yeah. reaction when you got that? Were you like, were you feeling like defensive or like you'd been betting on this and you were focusing on it and you realized you maybe need to change things? I was kind of in denial at the beginning. I was like, no, there's no way. But Gustav is just, I don't, I love Gustav. Like since the first day at YC, I was just so impressed by him. He was head of growth at Airbnb. He always gives me different feedback for some reason. And something that I learned, in, and I learned this in YC, is you can't average out advice. If you get advice from multiple people and you make an average of all the advice, it nets out negative or like neutral. So it, it's not helpful if you get advice from everyone and you take the advice from everyone and, and apply everything. Uh, so I tend to listen to everyone, but then choose who I trust and like go full in with that um, advice I trust. Or I, or I build my own version, like taking little bits of, of everything. I like to talk about it, like seeing different parts of the elephant. So I always have an elephant in my, in my desk because I like this analogy of, I think it's a, like a story from Hinduism or, or something where there's a bunch of, it's the parable of the blind man and the elephant. And it's like a bunch of blind men touching different parts of an elephant. And a person who can see comes, uh, comes to like closer to these people. And he's like, what does an elephant look like? So the person who is grabbing the tail is like, oh, it's like long, like a snake. Uh, the person who is grabbing the leg of the elephant is like, oh, it's like wide and it's like really tough or whatever. And the person who can see is like, none of you have any idea what an elephant is like. None of you can see it. So the learning is you can only see the elephant together, like taking different parts of the elephant and you can paint the clearest picture of the elephant, but you can't really see it. So that, that's like fast forward to the future. That's what I do now. But back then I was just like, it's either what Gustav is saying or what the other people are, are saying. There's no in between. Uh, so then I started, Gustav told me like, just think about it and spend, you know, one day per week thinking about potential business models. So I started doing that. It started like, okay, I'll give it a try. I'll start thinking different ways that we can monetize. And like all the time, I, I would just feel this pool of like, we need to do audiobooks. Like that's just so, so clear that we need to do that. I thought it would be very easy to convert our traffic into audiobooks. Uh, and I remember it was like, if we just convert 1% of the traffic, we're like, you know, profitable. And it's not like that. Like it didn't happen that way. Um, 
but it, it started like that, you know, Gustav saying this, other people saying something opposite. I thought about it, like it's different parts of the elephant. And then I was like, I need to make a decision. I can't be stuck in the middle. I need to choose one path or the other. And I ended up thinking, I really need to, like, we need to turn this into a business. If you can't make money, it's not a business. It's like, it might be a really cool project, but it's not a business. So at the beginning, it was more defensive. Then I started this process of like, there's a middle point. It's not either or. Let's start thinking about this. Uh, and then when I had enough information to gain conviction, I was like, we need to go full in and, and pivot. And yeah, I'm so glad and I want to talk about that pivot and then the realization you had around uh, product market fit, product channel fit, and product revenue fit. We'll get to that in a second. But who was with you during this process? Your team, who did you do it with? And, and how was your experience finding the right founding team? You had mentioned that everything of kind of disappeared at one point, right? And the, now you're yeah. back kind of rebuilding. And so how did you do that? Because that's got to be hard. Yes, yes. Actually, pivoting a company is, I think, a great experience because you learn so much. Uh, but yeah, I like split up with my co-founder because we literally wanted to do different things now. So I started, I started big with my former co-founder. His name is Max. Uh, Max is a great engineer and we did YC together and we had our first employee, Guillermo, uh, had done YC with us. Like we took him to Silicon Valley. It was the three of us living in a house, just grinding all day for, uh, for YC. And I would share this idea of monetization and in, like Guillermo loves capitalism and like very theory of capitalism. So I would always talk about these things uh, with him. And eventually what started happening was like Max had this really great idea of building more like a cash flow positive business, more like a lifestyle business. And I thought that was cool, but I was like, I just want an IPO. <laughs> like I want, I want to do something really big. Um, so if we need to kill this and like restart it to do something bigger, like I'll do it. So those are creating a lot, a, a, not a lot, but some friction. And eventually we were like, it, it makes more sense to, to stop working together. But Guillermo, who had been like employee number one founding team in this like previous company, we shared this new passion of actually turn this, turning, this, turning this into a business and, you know, just building a unicorn. And basically I told Guillermo, like, you know, we've been working together for couple of years now I really like you and I need a co-founder to build this like I don't want to do this by myself so I turned him into a co-founder more formally basically like I gave him uh, more stock and we became formal co-founders and it's been great because in the previous product I would handle all the product side and I would do like I would even do like UX UI design and a lot of things and it was kind of a mess and in this new pivot Guillermo was like I'll do it but you need to give me ownership of the product. I need to have autonomy and ownership. And you like, you just can't be involved in literally like designing the product. You need to give me some, some ownership on that. And I was like, okay, let's try it. And he just did an amazing job of deploying the, the new idea that I had for the product. And now what we do is basically like Gia takes care of all the product side and I take care of all the content side, like the strategy. If you think about it now, we're actually like 
a tech company, but also a content creator company. So um, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. But the process of pivoting is hard and it's even harder when things are going well and you're just not like, it, it doesn't feel natural to just stop and make like hard stop and, and change direction. But for me, it's always been like, either I'm going to do something huge on, or I'm not going to do this because if I just do something medium, I'll be like, you know, I, instead I would just go and work at Airbnb or something like I wouldn't be starting a company. So it just felt like the right thing. I, I thought I had to trust a little bit of my intuition back then. And it made also technical sense, you know, like making money is a good idea. So that's kind of how it happened. So I stopped working with my previous co-founder. I partnered like more strongly with Guillermo to be my co-founder. And we basically started rebuilding the team and getting more like different people, like content people, creative people, because it, it started to be something different. And in the very early days, what we realized pretty quickly was that even though we had, for example, 200,000 uh, audiobooks on the catalog, only back then, only like 5,000 of them were in Spanish. And we started saying like, oh, let's go talk to publishers to bring more books to Spanish. Publishers are literally like dinosaurs. They're really slow. Um, and we're just so fast. And I was just like, we can't wait for them. There's no way we can wait for them. Why don't we just build our own content like Netflix did? So I just took one intern who was literally like my assistant. And I was like, you know what? I've read these like short stories that I really like. Why don't you turn them into original pieces of, of audio? Like turn them into Spanish audio and let's see how it goes. And that's how the big original started, which are now the majority of, of our consumption, right? So it's always been this story of, you know, getting insights, experimenting a little bit until you gain conviction and you go. It, it makes sense. And uh, I remember I can relate. I had a business before Viveral. We were building websites. It was like a kind of a profitable business, but it felt like a lifestyle business. And at one point we just, we had to rip the bandaid off and we just closed, closed up shop and we went all in on the business. And I think there's those moments where it's hard to give up. Uh, this other thing you have there. But if you want to win and be great, you have to just focus. So I mentioned about the product market fit and the product channel fit. So you've got through, now you've got product revenue fix. You've got revenue coming in, which was something that you realized was important. And then that's kind of you, when you knew that this you were on the right path. What were some of the defining moments that told you that these three things were achieved? Yeah, I think... Like a very important moment was when I saw my dad using the product and actually like changing his life. Cause like I said, my dad didn't like to read physical books. And we, when we launched the first version of Beak, he was like, this is amazing. I'm listening to an audiobook per week at the gym. And I was like, wow, that's like, even though my dad has always been a huge supporter, he was my first investor. He's my best friend. Um, like he would never use the book review site. Like he was supportive, but he didn't really use it. And now it was like, I could clearly see that people in my circle, in my social circle were using it. And those qualitative signals matter a lot in the early days. So it was very clear to me that listening is a new reading, basically. And I think when there's strong pro-market fit, there's a, a behavior shift. shift. Like 
when there's strong pro market fit, there's a behavior shift. Like people change the way uh, they behave for for something. Uh, like Airbnb, you know, like you would never stay at a stranger's house, uh, but now you do. Or like you would never get in a stranger's car, in and now you do with Uber. So I thought there was something there, and I remember that when I was at YC, Sam Altman. He, he was my group partner. Like I also have so many learnings from, from Sam. Uh, and Sam said, like, the best companies don't do 2x better products or 2x better experiences. They do 10x better experiences. And he's like, how do you know if it's 10x better? And he's like, the difference between, you know, when you first got in an Uber and you never took a cab again, you know, that's like 10 times better. And I realized People don't feel that way with ebooks. Like ebooks suck. No one's gonna tell you, oh my god, ebooks, I love them. They were, everyone's gonna tell you, oh, I love smelling the paper or whatever, uh, in like the paperback book. But with audiobooks, it's 10 times better because you can do more of it. You cannot listen to the same amount of content that you read uh, just because you don't have enough time for like your eyeballs don't have enough free time. So I was like, it's actually 10 times better because you can read listening and you couldn't do that. So that was a really good indicator for me that there's something there. And when we started launching it, we could see people using the product. We could see that people were retaining. So it was clear that there was some retention there. I think there are two ways to measure product market fit. Uh, well, there are many ways, but these are the two that I like because uh, by the way, I don't think product market fit is binary. I don't think it's like you have it or you don't have it. I think it's like a spectrum, like how strong is your product market fit? And it's like a, you know, kind of like red to green, like how green or red is your product market fit level. And I could see that basically in, in the previous product, we would have like a orange yellow product market fit, but with this new product, we could see that people were using it more and it felt greener, basically. Um, so there are two ways that I like to measure pro market fit. One is retention cohorts. So if the retention curve flattens, um, like the important thing is that it flattens, right? Uh, and the higher it flattens, the stronger your pro market fit is. And the other way that you can measure it is what keeps you up at night? Is it like knowing if this thing is going to work? Or thinking like, how do I get more people on this? You know? So if it's how do I get more people on this, you probably have pro market fit. So that's how I realized like people in my social circle are using it. The retention's looking good. There's something here. Uh, we still have to do like a bunch of optimizations, like always. Um, but it just needs to be there. It's like love. You just feel it, you know? Um, and then with the product channel feed. And this is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about is the best products are built on in, in the backs of other channels of other products. Uh, that's how they get the majority of their users in the early days, right? Clubhouse got the majority of the users from Twitter. Uh, Twitch got the majority of their users from YouTube. YouTube got the majority of their users from MySpace and MySpace got the majority of their early users from email and email got it from the early, like, communication networks in the university. So you're always building on top of another channel. And this is something that I learned from Peter Thiel. Like in the early days, 70% of your acquisition is going to come from one channel. 
So in the first product, it was SEO. Like we were nailing SEO and we're getting a lot of users. In this new product, it's actually our creators. So that like our channel is the creators and their audiences. So if you don't have product channel fit, your acquisition will depend on spending more money on paid marketing, basically. And there's CAC inflation every year. And actually the CAC inflation of 2021 was like 40%. So it's really bad if you don't have product channel fit and have another uh, way to grow. And it needs to be designed in the product, right? Like big, the originals are just like designed to bring more people in. Um, so you need to design the company around acquiring users to, to adapt to that product, uh, product channel fit. And then the revenue part is, okay, at this level of product market fit, which is the retention, and at this rate of acquisition or like price of acquisition, CAC of users, how much money do I need to make so that I can, you know, break even on every user and grow uh, sustainably? And that's, that's kind of how you define how do you make money, basically. And subscriptions are great. I love them. I think they're really good. Um, and there, then you find other challenges in, in the revenue fit, right? Like in Latin America, there's a lot of involuntary churn because people don't have credit cards or yeah, literally they don't have credit cards, sometimes not even debit cards. So it's not only like, are people willing to pay for it? It's like, can you actually collect the payment and can you charge them at a enough, like high enough success rate to get the unit economics working? So I got a little technical. But no, that's great. It makes a lot of sense that I really like the thoughts on product channel fit. And there's definitely like each network is piggybacks another network. And that's a really interesting kind of concept. And so what's been the biggest challenge that you've faced so far? If you, if you kind of look at this, you've already talked about a lot of challenges. So I guess having needing to pivot after you've raised money is hard, right? Because you've got to manage expectations and all that. But what comes to mind when you think of the biggest challenge you've faced so far? Yeah, actually, I don't think pivoting was the biggest challenge. I think the biggest challenge, because this is the way I see it, like the challenge that I have, like the level of difficulty, what I do is like growing exponentially, right? We grow like 15 to 20% month over month. So the challenge gets like 15 to 20% harder every month. Um, and my emotional intelligence needs to go at the same rate because otherwise you just like break. It's, it's kind of crazy. So I think like there has, there have been different challenges in different stages, but the constant has been learning to manage myself. I think that has been the biggest challenge, like learning to manage myself and adapt uh, the level of emotional intelligence and sharpness that I need in every stage. Cause it, it's just always changing literally today, right? The, Big in January 2021 was five times smaller than what it is today. So like we've grown five X in, you know, nine months. Uh, so I cannot be the same person I was in January leading a company in January than the person I am now, because just the challenges are at another level. The stakes are getting higher and higher and higher. So learning to manage myself in every stage is, is a challenge because sometimes I feel like I have it. And then the next challenge comes and then sometimes like I lose my morning routine and I stop meditating or, or things like that. And I get a little off track and then I just need to get back on track. 
Um, so I think that, that's the How do you the level challenge. yourself up then? Uh, like, you mean, how do I keep How do you invest in yourself to of, kind of elevate and keep pace with the, you know, the growth of what you're doing? Yeah. Like the key is my morning routine. Like my morning routine, if I follow it and I'm like religious about it, I know I, I will step up to any challenge. And basically what I do is I need to work out at least 30 minutes per day because that just gives me ener enough energy for, for the day. I need to, like, I have this, like, smoothie recipe that I, uh, that I drink every morning um, that is just really well balanced so that I have physical health. Um, I always listen to at least 30 minutes of an audiobook, so I'm always learning something new every single day. Um, and then I meditate, and I also do something that I call clearings, which is basically... I have a list of things that I know might be challenging me or like limiting my growth in, in different uh, ways. And I read them every morning and I ask questions of like, in how many ways am I doing this today that I can destroy or I can like eliminate? How can I see more possibilities? How can I see uh, beyond this blocker? So I have my list of like 10 things that, are, that might be blocking me. And I just read them and, and try to mentally destroy them, basically. Um, so, for example, at, like before, I would, I would not like to be invited to, to podcasts and interviews before. I, I just didn't like it. I guess I had a lot of imposter syndrome. So I just started reading that in my clearings. Like, in how many ways am I, you know, limiting my growth because I feel imposter syndrome? And I just started reading it every day and destroying it. And now, you know, that has brought so much growth to me actually, because a lot of people become creators because I go to these um, podcast interviews or whatever. So I think it's a mixture of, you know, taking care of your physical health, your mental health, but also just knowing your limits and what, what are the things that are your limiting beliefs and destroying them, like seeing past them and working on them. So if I do that, it's just a formula that you can apply to any stage. So that's what that's I, amazing. I think it it's, works. it's amazing how systematic you are about that. And uh, I'm feeling uh, a lazy person as I listen to you with your morning routine, but that's okay. <laughs> no, I mean, sometimes I lose it though. Like sometimes I'll have like two, three weeks that I don't do it and I start feeling bad. So I'm like, I need to wake up early tomorrow and start again. Cause I know when I do it, it's just, I'm a goddess, you know, but when I don't do it, I just get lost. So it's just, it's like my medicine, yeah. I guess. So, so how did you end up at YC and, and how did that experience, it sounds like that was a very pivotal moment for you. How did that contribute to some of the important decisions that you've made? Yeah. So like I told you, I was at UT and I had been trying to get people to invest in, in big to get like some seed funding. I didn't know anything about fundraising back then. So I get why a lot of people said no, uh, but I was trying and I had gotten a hundred no's and I had like one month left in the U S and I had to come back to Mexico if I didn't find another option to continue working on my company, basically. So I had to go back to college in, in Mexico and just the idea of shutting down the, all the creativity and things that I was doing now, 
like scared the hell out of me. I was like, there's no way I'm going back. Uh, so basically I had applied to YC and I had been rejected already like two, three times. And for some reason, after so many investors had said no, something irrational in my mind was like, YC is my last card and I need to make sure I get into YC, which is like so weird because getting into YC is like the, the odds are so low. It's like, I think it's like 1%. Um, but I was just like, there's no way they're going to say, no, I need to get in. And I heard there was a YC partner, Kat Manialak, coming to South by Southwest in Austin. So I went to South by, I didn't have a ticket because I couldn't pay for a ticket. It was like a thousand dollars. And I just talked to the security guard and I told him like, please, you need to let me in. I just need to get in for 30 seconds, talk to this person, and then I'll leave. But this will change my life. You need to let me in. And then the security guard let me in for some reason. He was a really nice guy. Um, I get in, I talk to Kat, and I tell her, like, I need 30 seconds of your time. This is what I'm doing. I think it's going to be big, blah, blah, blah. And she, like, she liked something. And she was like, you should talk to my partner, Jared Friedman. And then I basically ended up going to Silicon Valley and meeting with four YC partners, even before the interviews, even before they sent out like who had passed to the, to the interviews. And I was just like, there's no way they're going to say no. Like, I just need to convince them. I need to stand out so that they see my name in the application and they think different. And we ended up getting an interview. I went to the interview and I was just so sure I was going to get in. I was like, there's no way if they say no, we're like screwed. There's it's like all or nothing. And we got rejected again. I was like, so sad. Uh, but then Kevin Hale called me and he's like, YC is not going to fund you this time, but we have this new program called the YC fellowship. They just did it for two. So I, I think not two summers, but they did two batches of that. So I was very lucky. And it was like equity-free, 20K, remote. You didn't have to move to, to Silicon Valley. And basically, it was like, like a baby version or like a light version of, of YC. So I did the same thing I always do. Just like deliver, deliver, deliver. We were growing like 30% week over week during that time. And at the end of that, we applied again to YC and we got in. So <laughs> it's not like a very traditional story of how you get into YC. Back then... It was not common that Latin American companies would get into YC. Uh, but that's how we did it. And then when I was in YC, I was just like the same. Like, how do we become top of the batch? Like, same thing. Yeah, persistence, right? just kind of an obsessive focus on being being great and, and making it happen. And so what has your fundraising journey been like since then? Since that initial kind of YC check? Yeah, it's it's been really good. Like, we... In YC, we raised uh, like 2 million seed round uh, or like a 2 million pre-seed uh, for the previous product, the, the social network for book lovers. Axel put in like a, the, not the majority of the round, but like a, a big check on, on that round. And the rest was like a bunch of angels and, you know, smart people that I liked. And when I had invested half of that money or a little bit more than half, in the previous product is when I did the pivot and early 2020, like literally two weeks before the pandemic started, I went, I, I always like go once per quarter to, to Silicon Valley. So I was doing my quarterly visit and 
then like a bunch of funds were very excited about what we were doing. And basically we raised like 4.5 million in like two weeks. It was really cool. So it was at the beginning of the pandemic. So great timing. And that was like our formal seed round. But, you know, it's like first round, second round, seed, pre-seed. I don't know. They call them very different ways now. Um, and yeah, like the next thing we're going to do is raise our Series A. That's amazing. And what have you learned about fundraising that you wish you knew a little bit earlier? I think it's all narrative. That's a really big part of it. Like, it doesn't matter, like, the numbers or, like, how fast you're growing or the retention. Like, all that stuff matters. It's not that it doesn't matter. But in the end, if if you can't tell a story of how this becomes huge, people are not going to fund you, even if your numbers look great, because they really want to see the vision of where you want to take this. So in the early days, I would focus a lot on like metrics and numbers. And in the end, like one of my investors told me this, like in the end, people are making a bet on Spanish language content, right? Like this problem that there are 1.5x more native Spanish speakers than English speakers. And the amount of content available is 10 times less. Like that is a big enough opportunity. And in the end, that's what they need to believe in, that Spanish language content is a big enough market and that you're the team to execute it. And yeah, like three or 2% more retention, like doesn't really matter if, if the narrative makes sense. Of course, if you have shitty numbers, you're not going to raise money either. So you need both. Um, but narrative is important and you need to be able to tell your story in a very convincing way. Yeah, I think it's way. underestimated with Seed and early stage uh, founders underestimate that. I mean, it's one thing that YC has crafted so well and why founders coming out of YC are so good at communicating that because they train a lot about, about how to do that. Um, you mentioned a few people that made a difference for you at YC and gave you some feedback. Are there any other mentors that have kind of changed the game for you? Yes. And I think like, a lot of people say bad things about having advisors. And I get why they say that. Like, there are so many people that say, oh, I want to be your advisor. And they don't put in money and they just want, like, you know, they just want free stock or whatever. Uh, but I have gotten transformative advisors. And I think this is something that people should do more. Uh, basically, what I did is, who are the people that are amazing and have done, like have executed themselves operators at companies that have solved similar problems. So Casey Winters, he was a head of product that uh, like he was product lead or growth lead at Pinterest. And now he's a chief product officer at Eventbrite. He's like the best person in SEO and growing through like creators because of all the Eventbrite stuff. So he's been incredibly helpful. We're like so lucky to, to work with Casey. And he basically works with my team every week. And it's just so great to have someone who has gone through a lot of the challenges to pick their brain. And again, it's not like you take all of what they say and it's like, 100% I'm going to do this. It's more like one part of the elephant. But I get Casey's part of the elephant because he's like really thoughtful on SEO and product. But then I also have AJ Arora, who was 
VP of Product on Audible for seven years. And then he was at Netflix and now he's at Disney Plus. So like his approach on like subscription businesses is great. Plus Casey. And then I got like another person from Netflix who did payments. And I've just been building like, I go and I see these companies that have done really amazing. And I see, okay, what are parts of the elephant of that company that I want to replicate or I want to learn? And I, the person who executed a lot of those strategies, I convinced them to invest in my company. And then I learned from them and they train my team. So it's like really good. Uh, so I would say AJ, Casey, Luis Vargas from, from, he was at Netflix and now he's at Facebook. He's been super helpful. Um, Greg Spiridelis, who was, um, he sold a Netflix original Storybots. So a lot of really great people. I, I mean, I had, I, I guess there are like seven of them that have been really good. And then I have people who are more like philosophical, but really good, like Sam. Like, I really like to talk to Sam Altman when I'm facing more like, you know, high level strategic questions. Like I'll give Sam a call and he's always super nice to, to reply. So yeah, I think just people who have different parts of the elephant build a really good advisory board. And, you know, sometimes in Latin America, you don't have access to those people. So it's, it's, it's a really great way to learn from That was them. a critical part of my journey as well. And, and uh, finding people that have some kind of area of expertise or specialized knowledge that allows you to kind of shorten the, the learning curve is, is awesome. Well, I got to ask, you know, what books have you read recently that you recommend? It's an important question for the CEO of Beak. Of course. Um, I recently finished The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. I love Naval. I'm like a huge fan of, of what he says. And I think just thank you to that person who just compiled everything that Naval says into one book. I think that's like the most amazing work. Uh, so I really like that one. I'm starting Viva Emprendedores. So I'm really excited about that one too. Um, and there's this recent one that we launched at Vic called the Campesino Astronauta, from farmer to astronaut, uh, from Jose Hernandez, who was a farmer, uh, and he dreamed of going to space, and he actually became an astronaut from, and he's like Mexican origins. Uh, so those are the three main ones that I'm like uh, finished or currently reading. What else? I like the, a lot of big originals, actually. So like a self-love one called like start your self-love journey, but it's not a book. It's a big original. So it's kind of like, you're not going to find it in English. Um, and there's one that I read every year. I reread every year or really listen to every year. And it's how to win friends and influence people. I think it's a great book uh, to learn how to sell and, and close deals. And the score takes care of itself from Bill Walsh also. So, I mean, I listen to so many audiobooks. Um, it's, it's like literally like a new per week. Uh, but I think those are the main ones. That's for, amazing. For well, those are all great recommendations. A few of that, which, you know, I've read. And uh, just to wrap up here, last two questions. One piece of advice that you can share with other founders. I would say this is like, I'm taking this from Naval. <laughs> from the book of uh, like the Almanac of Naval, but I, I just think it's really important advice to, to founders is 
It doesn't matter as much how hard you work. It matters more what you work on and who you work with. So like choose what you work on and who you work with well. That's like a really big part of it. And then, yes, working hard matters, but what you work on and who you work with really matters. Um, and, you know, think long-term and think big. Like if you're going to risk a lot and do all of this effort and it's so hard being a founder sometimes, play big, like play to win. Otherwise, it's not going to be fun enough, I think. Uh, so I think Love those that. two things. And what's wor one word that exemplifies entrepreneurship for you? Resilience. Yeah, that's, uh, that is a key ingredient to the journey of an entrepreneur. Well, listen, thanks so much for coming on the, the episode here. Thank you, uh, Pamela, and, and keep flying high, okay? Vamos la thumb. Yes. Thank you so chat. much, Brian. Yes, awesome. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Pamela Valdez, co-founder of Beak. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like her. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos la thumb. See you next week.